The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Latest on New Options for Eosinophilic Esophagitis. Considering Targeted Biologic Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash RFY860. Downloadable slides are also available. Hello, this is Professor Arjan Bredenoort from the Amsterdam University Medical Center. Welcome to this educational activity on the latest options for treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis. I'll start with an introduction to EOE, the prevalence, symptoms, and diagnosis. Eosinophilic esophagitis represents a chronic immune or antigen-mediated esophageal disease characterized clinically by symptoms related to esophageal dysfunction and histologically by eosinophil-predominant inflammation. The prevalence of EOE is about 1 in 2,000 people in Western countries. Incidence is estimated at 10 cases per 100,000 individuals annually. It occurs most often in those aged 50 years or less of age, at least three times more common in male patients than in female patients, and found between 2 and 7% of patients undergoing endoscopy for any reason, and found in about 12 to 23% of patients undergoing endoscopy for dysphagia. Iwi is the most common cause of food bolus infection. As you can see here, data from the Dutch histopathology database shows that the EUE prevalence has been increased to a huge extent here in the Netherlands. And you can also see that there's many more male patients than female patients. And of course, this is not only seen in my country, but also in the rest of the Western world. Here is data from Switzerland, Spain, Australia, and United States and Denmark, where there's everywhere a very clear increase in the disease. So what are EOE signs and symptoms? Well, they vary among children and adults. In children, there are feeding problems, failure to thrive, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, sometimes heartburn, regurgitation, and endoscopic findings of inflammation, such as exudates, furrows, and edema. In adolescents and adults, more typically you'll find food impaction and dysphagia. They're typically quite predominant. Other symptoms are heartburn, chest discomfort, and endoscopic findings of fibrostenosis, such as rings, strictures, and narrowing. Adaptive behaviors mask symptoms, sometimes abbreviated under the acronym IMPACT. So they may imbibe fluids to facilitate passage of solid food, modify foods, such as cut into small pieces or puree foods, prolong mealtimes, avoid harder texture foods, chew excessively, and turn away pills and tablets. So it is important that patients should be queried about adaptive behavior to dysphagia that they may not recognize as abnormal. Early diagnosis is important because uncontrolled EOE can lead to esophageal stricture. And more than 50% of the patients with a diagnostic delay had food impactions and uh, had a stricture. Feeding dysfunction, can be a consequence of uncontrolled EOE, especially relevant for children. And anywhere between 14 and 60% of patients with EOE develop feeding dysfunction. 21% of children with EOE who had feeding disorders also had failure to thrive. And uncontrolled EOE has a negative impact on quality of life. 
In 2018, the updated EOE diagnostic algorithm was published. So if there's a patient with a clinical presentation suggestive of EOE, an upper endoscopy with biopsies is indicated. If there's esophageal ears in a filia of more than 15 ears in a fills per microscopic high power field, it is very suggestive for EOE. You should evaluate for non-EOE disorders that can cause or potentially contribute to esophageal ears in a filia. But if these are not present, the diagnosis of EOE can be made. The endoscopic findings of EOE are abbreviated as EREFs which states for endoscopic reference score, but also for edema, rings, exudate, furrows, and strictures. So edema are the loss of vascular markings. Rings, or sometimes also called tracheolizations, are these mild ridges, distinct rings, or even can be very severe, which do not allow the passing of a scope. Exudates are these white plaques, sometimes mistaken for candida. If they're mild and less than 10% of the surface area, but they can also be severe, covering more than 10%, sometimes more than half of the surface. Furrows are the vertical lines in the esophagus. They're typical finding of EOE. And then there can be strictures. We performed a large study in which we investigated the impact of diagnostic delay on stricture formation and food impaction. What we found is that with each additional year of undiagnosed EOE, the risk of a stricture increased by 9%. If you look at the graph on the left, it shows duration of diagnostic delay on the horizontal axis and the prevalence of these endoscopic abnormalities on the vertical axis. And you can see that the longer the diagnostic delay, the more often fibrotic features are seen on endoscopy. On the right, you can see that the longer the duration of diagnostic delay, the more often patients will have strictures and food impaction event. So this shows that it is important to avoid a long diagnostic delay so, and start treatment early. Consequences of EOE are inflammation and remodeling. So from a normal esophagus with a patent lumen, inflammation starts, showing the typical findings of inflammation on endoscopy and on histology. With long-standing EOE, there's also fibrosis and narrowing until at the end there's a scarred, remodeled esophagus. So EOE is chronic and needs long-term treatment to control this. The goals of treatment are symptom control, control of inflammation, and avoid esophageal remodeling. This is the, the therapeutic algorithm for EOE, according to a European guideline. So for patients with confirmed EOE, you should consider one of these therapeutic options at first. BPI therapy, swallow topical steroids, or elimination diet. Now, when there's no remission, you check the efficacy of the alternating anti-inflammatory treatments above, and if this is not helpful, other medicine can be tried or experimental drugs or elemental diets. Now things have changed in the past few years with the development of monoclonal antibodies targeted at the disease activity in EOE. So I now will discuss the advances 
in therapy for EOE, including the latest insights from recent congresses. EOE is a TH2-mediated condition marked by infiltration of eosinophils into the esophagus. Activated TH2 lymphocytes increase tissue levels of TH2 cytokines, such as IL-4, IL-5, IL-13, as you can see below. And this will result in chronic esophageal inflammation and dysfunction. We know that ATP is a risk factor for EOE. As you can see on the graph below, you can see that patients with EOE often have other conditions such as asthma, allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis, IgE-mediated food allergies, and anaphylaxis to foods. This is shown by several studies. So why could we consider biologics for EOE? Well, there are, of course, corticosteroid refractory patients, or those that are intolerant to corticosteroids. Biologics offer a concept of therapy targeting specific allergic pathways. It is a systemic treatment of multiple forms of atopy, so not only EOE, but also atopic dermatitis and rhinitis can be treated. It offers potential benefits for treatment of esophageal remodeling and inflammation and has practical benefits of intermittent rather than daily therapy. The Pilimab is an antibody targeting the IL-4 receptor. It inhibits signaling of both IL-4 and IL-13. It's approved in the US and Europe, Asia and other countries around the world for treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis, moderate to severe asthma, chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps and prurigo nudularis, and recently for EOE, as approved in the United States. Here we show the results of a recent phase three study in which it was shown that the PDMA produces dysphagia symptoms and esophageal eosinophilia after 24 weeks of treatment. It's the so-called Liberty EOE Treat study in, performed in adults and adolescents with EOE. It was shown that the PDMAP had benefit over placebo for change in dysphagia symptom questionnaire, a PRO, from baseline to week 24. Also, the proportion of patients achieving peak eosinophil count of six or less was much larger in those treated with Dupilimab weekly versus placebo. Dupilimab also improved the endoscopic features of EOE after 24 weeks of treatment. Here you can see the absolute change in EREFs, which is much larger in the patients treated with Dupilimab compared to those treated with placebo after 24 weeks. Here is a, the results of a more extensive histology score, the HSS, both expressed as the grade score, which shows the severity, and on the right, the stage score, showing the histologic extent. And you can see that for both histological scores, again, the PDMAP was superior to placebo after 24 weeks of treatment. The 24 weeks treatment in the initial phase of the study was extended by another 28 weeks of treatment with dupilimab. As you can see in this graph, the patients that initially had 24 weeks of placebo and then received dupilimab as substantial reduction in dysphagia symptom questionnaire score to a degree that was similar to those that had started on dupilimab already in the first part of the study. 
it was shown in this extension phase of the study that dupilumab maintained histologic and endoscopic response of EOE after the additional 28 weeks, totaling a total treatment duration of 52 weeks. On the left, you could see that the percentage of proportion of patients achieving a peak eosinophil count of less than 15 is now higher than 80% after 52 weeks. Also, the absolute change in the EREFs was maintained after the 28 additional weeks of treatment. Furthermore, Lupilimab maintained the improvement in severity and extent of the histologic features of EOE at week 52. As you can see both on the left for the mean grade score and on the right for the mean stage score. As you can see here, fortunately, dupilumab is generally well tolerated and there were a few safety concerns. The treatment emergent adverse events in this study were not significant between dupilumab and placebo, both in the induction phase of the study as well as in the extension phase. Also, there were relatively few injection site reactions in this study seen. So part B of the study also showed that the PILIMAP improved clinical and histological aspects of EOE. It showed that almost 60% of the patients treated with PILIMAP versus 6% of the patients treated with placebo achieved histologic remission. And the reduction in this phage symptom questionnaire was again much larger for the PILIMAP compared to placebo. So the conclusion of this phase three clinical trial is that the PILIMAP 300 milligrams weekly demonstrated significant improvements in clinical, symptomatic, histologic, and endoscopic aspects of EOE and was generally well tolerated. On UEGW, we could present new subgroup analysis of this study. It showed that the PILIMAP improved clinical, symptomatic, histologic, and endoscopic aspects of EOE regardless of swallowed topical corticosteroid use. This was a pre-specified analysis of the Liberty EOE TREAT study in which the efficacy of dupilumab at 24 weeks was assessed in pooled patients from parts A and part B who received 300 milligram dupilumab versus placebo with and without a prior history of swallowed topical corticosteroids. The analysis was performed on prior STC use and it was defined as the use of any swallowed topical corticosteroids prior to study participation. All patients were required to wash out of these STCs for eight weeks prior to study baseline. Here you can see that both in the patients with prior STC use on the left, as those with no prior STC use on the right, the PILIMAP did much better in resulting in a histologic remission with a peak is in a fill count of six or less compared to placebo. So this was seen in both the patients that had prior STC use as in those that did not have prior STC use. Similar findings were seen in absolute change in dysphagia symptom score, both in the patients with prior STC use as in those that did not have prior STC use. There was a larger reduction in symptoms with dupilumab versus placebo. The same was used for the hist histologic endpoints, both in the patients with prior STC use as in those with no prior STC use. The PILIMAP gave a much larger reduction in change of the 
PUE HSS grade score compared to placebo. This was true for both the grade score and, as you can see in this slide, the stage score. So prior STC use or no prior STC use showed a similar reduction in EOE HSS stage score. Also, endoscopic findings were reduced in the patients with prior STC use as in the ones with the no prior STC use. The EREFs was reduced in both groups of the PDMAP users. Furthermore, the percent change in DSQ score from baseline was substantial and seen in both in those that prior STC use as in those that did not have prior STC use. Also on the UETW, data was presented on the phase three KIT study in which the efficacy of Dupilimab was investigated in children aged one to 11. This study was designed to evaluate efficacy, safety, and tolerability of Dupilimab versus placebo. Patients were randomized in a one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one fashion to subcontaneous Dupilimab, higher or lower dose, or matching placebo for 16 weeks. Overall, as you can see, Dupilimab resulted in a 68% proportion of patients receiving a peak ease in a full count of six or less compared to a 3% seen in placebo. The percentage change from baseline in peak ease in a full count was 21% increase in placebo compared to a reduction of 86% in Dupilimab. The absolute change from baseline in EREF score was 0.3 in placebo compared to a reduction of 3.5 in the PDMAP. And the percentile change from baseline in body weight was also much larger in those that were treated with the PDMAP. Overall, adverse events were similar between the PDMAP and placebo. And there were few AEs leading to study drug discontinuation, all seen in the placebo group, none in the Dupilimab-treated patients. On UGW, also data was presented on the budesonide or dispersible tablets. A 96-week open-label extension phase following a one-year double-blind trial showed that those patients that were in remission in the double-blind trial and continued to be treated with budesonide or dispersible were to a large majority, around 80%, still in histologic remission after the 96 weeks over-labeled treatment. Also, there was a stable reduction in symptoms measured with the, the ESI, and there was also a stable reduction in EREF's total score after 96 weeks of over-labeled treatment. The proportion of patients with deep endoscopic remission defined as no fixed rings or mild fixed rings, no exudates, no furrows, and no edema was 90% after the open-label extension treatment phase. And so the proportion of patients with deep histologic remission defined as a peak incivil count of zero was 78% at the end of trial.
These data suggest that if remission is obtained with budesonide, it is maintained in the majority of patients. Sendakimab is a recombinant humanized monoclonal antibody highly selective for IL-13. It inhibits binding of IL-13 to the IL-13 R1 and R2 receptors. It is administered as a weekly subcutaneous injection. Results from the recent phase two study showed that after 16 weeks of treatment with sendakimab, low dose, high dose, or placebo, the reduction in mean esophageal eosophil count was much larger for both dosages of sendakimab compared to placebo. Also, the reduction in mean EDF's total score was much larger for the patients treated with sendakimab compared to those treated with placebo. There are other ongoing studies for treatment of EOE and EGITs. I mentioned sendakimab, where there is currently a phase three trial running in adults and adolescents with EOE. Benralizumab is an agent targeting IL-5 receptor. There's a current phase two, three trial in patients with eosinophilic gastritis and duodenitis and a phase three trial in adults and adolescents with EOE. For dupilimab, there's a phase three trial in pediatric patients with EOE and a phase two trial in eosinophilic gastritis. And atrazimod, which is a S1P receptor modulator, is being investigated in a phase two trial in adults with EOE. So in summary, EOE patients have elevated risk for atopic and other immune-mediated diseases, which should be considered when discussing therapeutic options in the future. Budesonide or dispersible tablets are approved in Europe for treatment of EOE. And there's now a monoclonal antibody treatment, the Pilimab, approved for EOE in the US and under review by the EMA in Europe. Multiple other new treatment options, mainly biologics targeted targeting allergy pathways are being developed for EOE. And personalized approaches to patients with EOE remain an important aspect to care. I'd like to thank you very much for joining me today for this presentation, and I hope you find it useful as the treatment landscape for EOE continues to evolve. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash RFY860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals.